Welcome to the Succession Fit Podcast. Our host is financial advisor, and we'll talk about this at some point, fourth degree black belt, Tom Hine. Tom, very excited for this podcast. There's a lot of stuff uh, that that you're looking to, or knowledge you're looking to impart on a lot of people. And, and you've got some experience having written a book and, and having spoken to people before. Why? Why a podcast? Great question. Uh, the first thing is I see a lot of confusion in the marketplace as the baby boomers of my generation are starting to look at retirement themselves. Confusion about what do I do with 30 or 40 years of my life work? Um, you know, Do I try to have one of my own children take over the practice? Do I sell it to an outside firm? Do I stay within my broker dealer? All sorts of really important questions. So one, a lot of confusion. And two, Fortunately, with my coaching programs and having written a book on this, I have a lot of uh, experience I can share with people who might be sort of venturing into this for the first time, either as an acquirer, they might want to buy, mm -hmm. or if they're getting their own firm ready to sell. So I want to impart knowledge to those people as well. Okay. Um, we need to learn a little bit more about your relationship. Uh, and again, that fourth degree black belt thing, I think is going to come up at some point in all this, but with, with health and wellness and Eastern philosophy, and how are you going to tie that all into this podcast? Great question. Uh, just a little bit of history background. I grew up, um, as a severe asthmatic outside of Boston when I was a child and my parents were very smart about, it. they never sheltered me. They let me go outside and, you know, play hockey, play tennis, whatever, and over the years, when I went to University of Connecticut and got involved in martial arts, I noticed two things. One, my frequency of asthma attacks went almost to zero. My health got better, and then I got really involved with, with martial arts. So there's the wellness aspect. And if you take a look at what it takes to run a financial services practice today, probably any small business, but I know financial services better, there's a lot of mental you know, health and wellness you need to run these things because you have you're being pulled at by many different directions. You know, you've got employees, you've got uh, compliance, you've got client issues, you have stock market related issue. You know, you got, what does the Fed do today? So I realized over the years of both training, running my own firm and then writing the book that really a big part of running a good practice and sometimes getting it ready for sale is to have a good health and wellness regimen that can be different for everyone. Some people like to run, some people like to do yoga. Mine happens to be uh, martial arts. Oh, that is absolutely fascinating. All right. Um, so this is going to be this is going to be deep here. Yeah. I feel like this, this is going to be a little bit more than just mergers and acquisitions. This is going to be a little more, a uh, little more zen, if yes. you will. Right. Absolutely. Um, one of the best quotes I had early on in the book was the what they call the the white belt attitude. So for those of you that might not know martial arts, white belt is the beginning belt. When you bow into the dojo for the first time, by definition, everyone's a white belt. But the masters, those that are very well advanced, fifth degree black belt and higher, recognize that there's an advantage because when the white belt, when he or she bows in, they're so new to it that they often have insights that the rest of us don't because we've been doing it for so long. So we call it beginner's mind is another aspect of the book, which is the first time you see something, um, I'm sure this has happened with your children, it's happened with my son, they can make a comment that you'll say, wow, that is so insightful because it's their first time. Right. They're not biased. So I took that analogy when looking at practices and I realized as I'm selling, looking to either 
buy a practice or help somebody in coaching them to sell it, there's certain questions they will ask me that I'll say, oh my gosh, I never heard that before, even though I've probably done this a hundred times. So if you take the analogy of the beginner's mind, the beginner's mind is open to new suggestions. And we're not biased by the expert's feeling of, oh, I've done this so many times, you don't have to tell me anything. So that's a big part of it. The second thing is that I think is important when you're open to different uh, solutions or options, you sometimes can create a really cool succession plan or continuity plan that's unique to that person because you weren't biased by all the other ones you've worked on. So think of it as open mind, beginner's mind attitude, but the ability to tailor what each person wants because you have what I call that white belt attitude. And it's the same thing in life. If somebody were to teach you how to play tennis the first time, you'd be asking questions that the pro might say, well, no one's ever phrased it that way. Even though they know they're trying to teach you a forehand or a backhand, yeah. you say, well, when do I turn my wrist over? And, and so all these questions that come up for the first time. So I find it very exciting when I'm talking to buyers or sellers who are new because they often uh, challenge me to come up with analogies or answers that I haven't had to before because of that. Uh, you know, now that you're saying it, you, you say that and I, I'm thinking, you know, I work with a lot of young people. I'm also uh, a broadcasting instructor and the amounts of questions I get where, yeah, you're like, oh, it's a great question. And, and you know, uh, you sort of get to the to the basis of it, things that we just sort of take for granted at this point. Well, I, I, Tom, we're off to a good start. I like this. Um, let's talk mergers and acquisitions. Obviously, we're coming off possibly the most trying times of our life, this COVID pandemic, starting to wind down here. As far as the financial services industry is concerned, what are what are the trends in mergers and acquisitions right now? Yeah, great. So a big part about it is with low interest rates, uh, the banks and the private equity, what we call PE firms, have stepped in to supply what I call a bevy of capital. So the good news is there's money for those that want to acquire to borrow. But like everything else we talked about, Zen, and I talk about yin and yang, the opposites, the ironic part is with more money available, prices are being pushed up as well. Since everyone that has a good credit score could borrow money, that means they're out there competing for those same practices. So one of the biggest trends now, plenty of money, but the other flip side is there may be some what we call frothiness where people might be overpaying for some of these practices because we call it the urge to merge, right? Everybody wants yep. to grow. So that's one trend, plenty of money. Another one, a bit of frothiness. The third thing I would say, there seems to be, and it's not always accurate, but if you read in the financial press and you go to conferences now that are starting to happen in, in person rather than just Zoom, there's a feeling that if you don't grow enough and you don't have these economies of scale, you won't have the technology to compete with firms that are above you. So for example, just to give you one, a lot of people record their notes you know, after a meeting, it used to be in the old day, people actually typed notes. Then they would use software like Dragon or something updated. Well, now because of COVID, you know, we've been able to automate so we could do an entire Zoom meeting, record the notes and have that thing all come electronically and be edited with a letter ready to go out to clients where we couldn't do that maybe two years ago. It's that streamlined. So for every industry, including financial services, COVID forced those trends that were in place to accelerate. And one of them is this automation of both the client service and in running your practice. And if you take that fast forward, if you're a small firm, let's say less than 100 million of assets and you do a good job, 
but your clients are starting to be bombarded by the larger firms, then they start to see the ease of use. For example, there was a survey recently that asked a bunch of millennials if uh, I think it was if Amazon or Apple came into the investment business, how likely would you be to at least give it a try? And it was something like 75%, oh, right? <laughs> so we all know, not that they're going to, but the important thing about that survey was they weren't even thinking about answering that question, which is 75% said I'd give it a shot. What does that mean to those of us in financial services who have loyal clients who might say, love the work you do, but it's way too cumbersome? You know, in 10 seconds, I can click and get things done. So that's just yeah. an analogy, but that's how fast things are changing. Well, you know, sure. And, you know, working in the real estate field, as I do, um, you know, there's all these dot-com mortgage sites and people are like, oh, wow, I don't have to even talk. I just couple clicks and I get approved. Don't do that. That's right. a terrible idea. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and again, we've seen it even in broadcasting, just the way we're doing this podcast and we'll be doing it in the future. Uh, we've been able to sort of streamline the process in how to record, how to bring in people remotely, which was so much more difficult a year ago. And here we are a year later. Um, and and we've got people zoomed in uh, all over the world whenever we want, whenever we want. Now, Tom, one of the first things that you and I ever talked about when we spoke was you talked about firms that 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 sort of hold on for too long mm -hmm. where they should have sold. Um, you kind of talk a little bit about that. How do you know? Is that something that you'll be talking about in this podcast? So so for people who who own firms uh, that, that they can sort of figure out when the right time is and, and when do you know when it's too late? Great. So that that's a great one. In fact, going back to the health and wellness, I want to mention early on, one of my motivators for writing the book and then doing the audio book was I had met advisors in Connecticut in their 70s and early 80s who initially I met and a year later said follow up and they literally had died by the time we moved on because I would I would one day I called one of them and the uh, the widow picked up and I felt awful because I didn't know he had passed on. So number one, uh, here's a couple of ideas about if you've been in the career 20 years or more and you've not built out your infrastructure, meaning hire more employees, add to your technology stack, you generally are in that danger area where we're not saying you should sell, but you need to upgrade your services, your offerings, because every client knows they meet you at a certain age, but 20 years later, they're different clients. They might've had children, grandchildren. They might've started businesses. They might've retired to Florida. So we often have to remind ourselves as we grow our companies that our clients are growing. They're not static. We might remember them when we first met them, yep. but they're not the same. So those are all important aspects. So if somebody's holding on and roughly when you get to be mid to late 60s and early 70s, you can still be very sharp at planning. It can be very sharp at the client relationship, but probably your, your technology you know, finesse isn't going to be the same as maybe a millennial. So those are reminders that you've either got to bring in that talent or maybe merge with someone who has that because it is an awful lot to learn. Um, later on, we'll talk about there were so many different technologies that I learned when I went to record my audio book that I'd never used before. And I even oftentimes had to call in my staff and say, hey, can you help me out with this particular software? And even if they didn't know it, intuitively, they would figure it out quicker than me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's part of it. So number one, number two, big one is health issues, right? We've often said, why would you keep working an extra five or 10 years 
if you had a major health issue that you were battling, because it's tough enough to go through the workday on its own, and then you might be battling health issues. So sometimes when I meet advisors, I say you should have a continuity or succession plan before you have any health issues. Doesn't mean you have to sell tomorrow, but have a draft version of it, right? Because you and I know you never want to have a fire sale on your business. Right. So that's so number one, age is a factor, not the sole factor. Number two, health is another factor. And the three thing, believe it or not, the third thing that I say is your lack of uh, focus sometimes, you know, as advisors age and they get torn in different directions of wanting to visit the grandkids or they have a hobby or whatever, their focus may not be on the practice anymore and building it. It may be sort of, we call it sometimes, you know, collecting the revenue as the firm doesn't grow a lot, but it's stable. But at that point, your clients might see that you're not innovating anymore. And believe me, we all know in the business, your clients often have accounts with other firms. We like to think all their money yeah. is with us, but it's, <laughs> it's the biggest joke in the business is when someone goes, oh, all my clients have all their money with us. We say, you know, they're either lying to you or they're too new to know that that's not the way it is. When it comes to men and women financial advisors, do you see a difference in the way they go about their succession and continuity plans? Huge, huge. And thanks for bringing that up. So for the audience's benefit, I want to differentiate what succession and continuity mean. Then I'll circle back on that question. So when I was newer, maybe 15 years ago in the business, I thought succession and continuity meant the same, but they actually don't. Um, a continuity plan is what we call break glass in case of emergency. That means you don't come home from work that night. There's been a bad car accident. What's in writing that allows your employees or your office manager to take that plan and say, what happens now to the business? And the reason why we call that break glass in case of emergency is you don't intend to die. Something happens unexpectedly. So that's one succession planning, which is where we also spend time, is the more ideal. That's your five or 10-year plan where you're grooming a successor. Yep. You're consciously, and look, you might bring two people in and it might not work out, but maybe the third time is the charm. So we like to explain to people a continuity plan can be a two or three-page document that, you know, that helps solve an urgent crisis, whereas a succession plan is a longer-term you know, three- and five-year process. So they both work together, but they solve different needs. Now, circling back to your question about female advisors, and I wouldn't have known this 15 years ago, but the last three acquisitions we worked on happened to be, just by random luck, female advisors. And what I noticed right away was this stunning difference between their ability to organize their clientele, um, know them even better on a deeper level, although there were some male advisors that did a great job, but they were very clear and they also were very clear about why they wanted to exit. They didn't want to hold on too long. They wanted to be with children and grandchildren. In one case, one advisor did have a health issue in the family, but they were much more clear cut about the money was important. The practice was important, but my life outside is far more important. So I think, and again, this is just a short amount of statistics, but my instincts are that the female advisors were able to clearly differentiate what the bigger picture was and how their practice fit into that, as opposed to keep going to work every day, doing the same thing for 30, 40, 50 years. That's what I noticed. Well, you know, again, just to sort of touch back on wellness, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a 46 year old man. Um, and I think I'm just sort of beyond that mindset that my dad grew up with of pretty much work yourself to the bone till you die. Right. 
And and I don't think that that mindset changes, even if your job's not blue collar, but white collar. Whereas I think for women, you're right. Bigger picture. The money's great, but I want to enjoy life. And that's that's really important, too, to, to be able to get out in time so that you can enjoy life. Um, yeah, it's that's a it's a really interesting thought. Again, that's that's sort of the. uh the philosophical approach to all this. Right. There was a great quote in the book. Um, I wish I could remember it word for word. It was from the Dalai Lama. And what it basically said when they asked him, you know, what do you find most fascinating about mankind? And he said, well, and I'm paraphrasing, but it is in the book. He said, basically, man spends his whole life working to accumulate money. And then he uses that money to buy back his health because he didn't, you know, he worked too yeah. much. And then because he's nervous at the time that he's working about the future, he doesn't enjoy the present. And then when he, he or she gets sick, they're certainly not enjoying life. So he basically says he lives, mankind lives as if he's never going to die, but he dies never having lived. It was just a brilliant oh, quote. Yeah. And when I saw that, I remember running to one of my associates going, I got to put this in the book. You know, it's at the end. But it occurred to me that whether you run the plumbing business, an HVAC business, an accounting firm, we all face those same issues, which is at some day we don't want to be spending that hard-earned money to buy back our health if if we can avoid it. Right. Um, why is the buyer-seller ratio still so high? It's like 40 to 1. Yes. Another great question. So um, there's a few different ways to answer it. Number one, we found that <clears throat> there are so many buyers out there now that have the financing that we talked about. So more money competing with the dollars. So that's number one. There's more people out there to do it. Number two, when I mentioned earlier, there are many sellers that will go to work every day. They love their clients. They haven't really grown their practice. We call it coasting. And so if you think about it, if you can go to work every day, earn about the same amount of money as last year, you have no boss technically other than your clients. And if life's pretty good, why would you want to sell? So what we've seen is you have those two competing forces. Here's another statistic that may shock the audience. By many reports I've seen, there are more CFPs, certified financial planners in this industry, over the age of 70 than there are under the age of 30. Wow. So think about that, right? So that tells you something about the dynamics. So number one, too many buyers. Number two, you can coast for a long time in this business. And number three, I really don't think some of those people really have plans for what they want to do after they sell. You know, whether it's golfing, hobbies, charity, you name it, you really have to have a conscious game plan of what you want to do. Otherwise, selling your life's work and walking out the door can be very, very scary. Well, and we see that, I think, with professional athletes too. And and I think even to a certain extent, entertainers where, you know, they start, they 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 hold on and, and it's not a great ending. Right. You know, uh, it, and I I've obviously in, in this business as well, if you hang on for too long, you're going to get exposed Yep. at some point. Yeah. And the worst thing is, think about this way, your clients and anyone that's in the personal services business like you and I, your clients do really depend on you a lot more than you realize. Some of them will say, before we buy that vacation home, we run it by our financial advisor. Some say, you know, we now have our first grandchild on the way. We want to get that college savings plan started. So a lot of times I remind advisors, even if you are not ready to retire, your clients are looking at you saying, all right, he or she's getting long in the tooth. They don't have the support structure they should. 
I like them. I love them. They're great people. But I got to think about what happens if they pass on. And I, I often tell clients this. When I was 44 years old, I'm now 60, I had my first client. He was an engineer from Pratt Whitney, still a client to this day, was brilliant. He said, Tom, love the work you do. He goes, I have to work in redundancy work at Pratt & Whitney. He says, so my question to you is, what happens if you don't make it home? Where does my account go? When I was 44 years old. So that was a big wake-up call. And I started working way back then on my first succession plan. And first I did a continuity plan. So I really can tell you the day that that client sat there and asked me, it was a brilliant question. I was not prepared for it. And I really had to work over the next six or nine months to get the beginnings of the first one. So I've witnessed this myself, but know that your clients really depend on you and they need you and your team to be up to date on current trends and technology. Otherwise, like you said, if you fall way behind, you don't want to fade out. Not a good way to do it. My financial planner is a woman. She's amazing. She's retiring uh, to spend time with her grandkids. And um, she gave her my number. Yeah. <laughs> you know, again, I mean, I, I think uh, what a brilliant. Um, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but uh, 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 why was I bringing that up? That was going to lead me into a question and I totally lost it. Spending time with the grandkids? No. He said something to me the other day about it, and now I can't remember what it was, and I was just going to bring it up to you. You'll oh, think of it. I'm sure I will. Oh, boy. Carol. Tip of the tongue. Her name is it. Carol. Why did I bring that up? She said something, and it stuck in my head, and I was like, I can't ask Tom about this. It'll come back. Oh, all right. They call that tip of the tongue syndrome. So yeah. Don't worry. All right. So, but, but the other part I want to add about the female advisors, which I thought was very important, they were much more open to this idea of the team approach. They love the idea that I have both, you know, male and female advisors, but the idea that any firm as it grows, you can't know everything, even if you're the owner, you delegate a lot. And I think they saw how my comfort zone was in delegating important roles to other employees because you can't be chief cook and bottle washer and really run a firm all the time. So I think not that, again, not that male advisors didn't understand it, but maybe it's the nurturing aspect of mothers. I don't know, but they definitely understood this sort of community aspect of why wow, you've got a lot of different moving parts at your firm and they wanted to sort of plug into that before. And the other thing I meant to mention too, to the audience, it doesn't mean that someone has to join one day and sell the next. Oftentimes they'll join and we call it creating an exit ramp for them. Yep. They'll join and work for a year or two and slowly segue, you know, off that exit ramp. Well, I would say if you're going 95 North, you know, you take the exit ramp. So another misconception in the industry is that people have to come in, hand over their clients in one day and they're gone. That really works out that way. They normally, they call it now sell and stay where they can sell their firm to you and stay and work for a year or two and nurture those relationships. And when they're comfortable, they can ride off into the sunset knowing that the new team has taken over. So that's a much more common approach. Oh, yeah. That seems like that would be, again, when you talked about it before, like this is your life's work. And the idea that you could sort of guide that company through the first year and sort of see where it's going and strengthen up the relationships. To me, you're walking, you're walking uh, into the sunset feeling a lot better about things and really feeling like, oh, my baby's in good hands. Exactly right. One of my favorite quotes on the subject is um, in one of my coaching programs, Lee Brower, my coach, mentioned that he was fortunate enough to interview Warren Buffett years ago. 
and this is coming from from Lee's mouth, but Lee said that he used to use the analogy when Warren Buffett was trying to close on a deal, he would say to the owner, you know, wouldn't you like to be like the artist that goes in the Metropolitan Museum of Art every month and sees your work hanging on the gallery? So it was your work, but you don't have to worry about all the operational aspects. You can just go and create. Yeah. And apparently, you know, from Lee's words to, to my ears, but I hear that that has been successful for Warren Buffett and that people would love to see their work for display without all the operational nightmares. And so I use that same analogy to advisors. I say, take your 40 years of hard work, integrate with our firm, but enjoy it. Enjoy the ride. Don't sit there and fret every day because we'll get into why infrastructure, compliance, marketing, all those things can be overwhelming, especially if you're a smaller practice. I do want to shift gears for a minute because you've written books. Yep. Uh, you wrote one solo. You co-authored a book. Um, first of all, the difference between the two. Yeah, I got to tell you, the first one years ago that put me on the map was with my great co-author, John Brubaker. And it was actually about a, an arbitration I was in. And even though I won it, you know, it was so important for me to go back and sort of detail all the things that happened. So we actually got all the, you know, all the tapes from the hearings. And John was great at actually helping me basically put all the thoughts down and create the infrastructure. And I was there for the story part of it. So that was great because it was a collaboration. It was fun. We got it to a major publisher, Wiley. And on the first draft, they accepted it, which we're told is rare. So John told me, he said, Tom, I don't want to jinx you, but what we just did almost never happens. So for many years, I got so busy. And then a few years ago, I thought, I got to get back to this book thing. But I wasn't a writer. I knew I could write, but I wasn't a writer. And by a lucky connection with my daughter, having gone to Georgetown University, I met one of her professors who taught this course that originally was only to undergraduates. And then it became to people related to Georgetown. And now I think it's even worldwide. And that became the first solo effort. So the big thing on the solo effort is, you know, you live and die by the sword. You know, when you're a co-author, you often wonder, well, was the success half mine, you know, three quarters, maybe only 20%. And even though it was great success, you know, there's always that nagging doubt was you're the solo author. You realize if it works, it's because of me. And if it flops, it's because of me. And I'm willing to accept that. The second thing I'll share, which is very, very important. And I wouldn't have known this the first time with a co-author, you had to coordinate your schedules. And oftentimes, since we both ran businesses, they don't line up. And that can be frustrating. There can be a day where you go, oh my gosh, I had a couple of cancellations. I got three free hours, but he couldn't free up the day. Yep. Well, when it's a solo effort, you know, you're much more in charge of your schedule. Um, and that's an exciting aspect of it too. Uh, was the first draft taken on that book? Yeah, the first draft was, although I will say we had four different editors. So going back on the second book, they have what's called a DE, a developmental editor. He was brilliant. He would take my rough draft and go, Tom, you didn't tie this story in right, or paragraph three is confusing. So the DE, in my opinion, that gets you launched was the first phase that got me to a higher level. Then you go in there and you have an ME marketing editor, and they take the raw draft saying, how are we going to get this out there in the universe? And then you go to other editors. So absolutely um, had a lot of help along the way on the second book from the people that really knew what they were doing. And it was for me, at that point, it was more fun because I was being guided by experts that knew more than I knew. What was the most challenging part to writing the book? Um, believe it or not, for some people, it's what they call that creative spark. Um, and, and there's a different type of writer. So I'm a disciplined writer. I can crank out 
2,000 words a week, no matter whether it's a good week or a bad week. The toughest part for me was a lot of my book is based on interviews with live advisors, successful people. What I didn't know at the time was months later, I'd go back to have them edit it and things change in the story. So these great paragraphs that I wrote you know, that were my version of uh, like Bach or Beethoven, right? I'm like, oh, this is great. They would just X out the paragraph, go, that's no longer accurate. So for me, the frustrating part was when I wrote it, I was excited. And then when they had to go back and edit it, things changed. I don't know if there's an easy way to solve that, but maybe it was trying to move up the uh, the publication date, what they call the pub date. Mm -hmm. Because when you write a great story, you hate to have someone mark it apart. So that for me was probably the most frustrating. Uh, so that, and that first book was 2008. What's changed since that first book came out? Oh boy. Other uh, than maybe everything. Yeah, I was going to say the, <laughs> the better question is what hasn't right. changed, right? But I would say in the publishing world, you know, it's all technology driven, you know, to get on the Amazon platform is very, very challenging. You got to have people market. So I would say in 08, it was just write the book and have a good, you know, editor or someone launch it for you. Now everything is much more self-published. So now, you know, you have to know how to write the book. You actually have to know the inner, inner workings of some of the software to get it on the right platforms, because writing a book is one thing, but getting thousands of people to be able to view it is yeah. another thing. So that's, a big part of it. The second thing I would say is people's schedules. I noticed, you know, we had this writer's group that met every week on zoom during the book and, uh, courting people's schedules since 08 to now with the advent of social media, you know, iPhones and all that was much more difficult the second time than it would have been years ago because there was so much more going on, but we definitely did weekly zoom meetings with all the writers and that was fantastic. Is this the DC 19 writers group? Yeah, that was created. Let's hear by, a little bit about this. Yeah. So this was, um, and again, my, I, I tip off uh, hats off to Georgetown university and in particular, uh, professor Eric Custer was the one that started this. And so he created what they called this, uh, this group of people in this case, the year you're publishing was 2019. So DC 19 would have been a zoom group that met every week with a coordinator who would pose a series of questions and you have a series of exercises and you didn't want to fall behind in your group, right? Cause it's a lot of ego. So every week you'd have the call and you have to say, okay, who got what done? You know, who got how many words written? And then we'd have a little contest. Um, who's out there creating their marketing plan for who they want. So every week you were basically on a collab. Everyone was an author, but we were all kind of encouraging each other on. So another thing I heard from people writing solo, you know, sort of, uh, stuck on your own, whether it's in the basement or on your, it's very, very difficult to motivate yourself. But if you were part of a collaborative group, they didn't do any writing for you, but they would often read some of your paragraphs or they give you feedback. I found that hugely helpful because you really didn't feel like you're on an island. You felt like you were in a community of writers. We actually got to meet, since this was all before COVID, we actually flew down somewhere in the local area anyway in DC, but I flew down and met people all over the country. So we had a couple of meetings on the Georgetown campus oh, cool. where for the first time you were seeing these authors and you know, that flew in. So to me, it was an exciting time. It's a great recipe and it seems to work. And new degree press is the name uh, of the Georgetown university publication group that helped us. Amazing. Um, let's talk about the Zen of business acquisitions. What are some mistakes advisors shared with you when you interviewed them in this book? What's the, maybe the most common one? Yeah. Great, great question. If there's any takeaway, you know, those moments where I tell everyone, if you need to pause and rewind and, you know, play this again, 
the biggest thing I took away from the whole project, and I still do today, is this idea of culture. When you're buying a firm or you're selling to someone, you have to make sure there's what people call cultural alignment. And if you don't, you might luck out, but the odds are you're going to be swimming uphill you know, against the tide. So culture was number one. Another one that I heard is called absorb versus afford. A lot of advisors and firms out there are big enough that they can afford to buy a practice monetarily, mm -hmm. but culturally they may not be able to absorb the practice, right? So that's called absorb versus afford. And that's another common mistake that we've seen and read about where firms can go out and buy somebody that doesn't really fit well because of the culture. So culture one, absorb and afford. And the third thing was what I referenced earlier on the banks and the financing lending. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, but many firms are overpaying now for practices. We hope they make good money over five years, but because prices have been bid up, just like the housing market, yep. you know, if you're going to be in a house 10 years, maybe it was a good deal. If you're going to be in a house five to seven years, maybe not. So those are the three things that I know is those are the themes that are important today. Um, are we building sustainable businesses for the next generation? Yeah, my fear is, and according to Dave, Dave DeVoe, who's well known in our industry, is that we're not, you know, unconsciously we're not building them. Meaning when you've been around 20, 30 years, you're not looking at succession and continuity plan. You're not grooming people. And therefore what happens is these businesses sort of die on the grapevine. They're there, yep. they exist. And then one day the owner is not there. And then those clients, we call it scattered to the four winds. Those clients have to find a new provider because nobody told them that was. So again, at the larger end, and I'll break it down into what they call, there's definitely three tranches here. When you're below 250 million or 220 million or whatever, you're at the smaller end of, it's still a lot of money, but the smaller end of financial services. And then you have those firms that are about 250 million of assets to about 550, you know, 600 million. And then those that are above that are the largest group. So the reason I say that is clearly the firms that are above three, four, 500 million, they have infrastructure, right? They have HR managers, they've got payroll, they've got this, they've got that. But there's thousands, I mean, thousands of firms, and this is where this whole podcast is important, that are well below that 150 million mark that run very profitable. The clients are wonderful people, but they haven't built a succession plan and they don't have a plan for it. And those clients are often left to wonder, well, what do I do someday if Joe doesn't show up to work? And I'll just segue, my first practice I ever bought in 2004 was this true story, a gentleman who we're still friends with, by the way, lived in Connecticut, he and his wife, she was a real estate agent. He was an advisor and he reached out. Somehow he found my name on, on email and we started talking. And I said to him, Jim, what was it in your mid seventies that prompted you to sell? He said, true story. I have a friend on Cape Cod. So this say this was 2005. So his story took place in 2004 and Cape Cod, one of my good friends passed away unexpectedly of a heart attack. And his wife thought they would come in and collect the files for his business. But because she wasn't licensed under regulations, she she wasn't allowed in, not because she was a bad person, but right. legally. So all of his clients, which he worked years to acquire, were given free to other advisors in the office for no value because they didn't have to sell it. So when Jim heard the story about his best friend, he correctly said, that's not happening to me. And that's how we connected up. And that's how the whole story started.
man, uh, I just got a will done recently. Yep. Uh, you know, as a dad with a business and, and four children, um, you know, my wife is a lawyer, as a matter of fact, and it was something we, we'd been talking about it for four or five years. Right. Uh, and finally, uh, a friend of ours who's an attorney was like, let me do this for you. And we signed all the papers and she's uh, been drawn up the documents and got to have a secession plan. I mean, you have to, you got to think about the future. Um, wow. I, you know, Tom, these are things that I would think would just sort of be part and parcel with the business. But as somebody who's a new business owner myself, I've, I've owned my business for uh, about two and a half years. I do constantly find areas where like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's all. Um, how would you advise a small firm now to sort of, take a look at themselves and figure out like, what, what are my shortcomings and what do I need to work on immediately? Great question. In our succession fit process, we often do this in the early interview, but I'll share certainly with the listeners. Number one, what you want to do is take stock of if, if you were a client of your firm, how would you want to be treated if your advisor passed away, right? Flip the, flip the roles. So once you've done that and it might take, you know, block off some time in your calendar, go, yeah, even though I want to be doing this forever, if I weren't here tomorrow, what would I want to have happen to my clients? Once you're comfortable enough, and if you've known them a long time, one of the great advisors in the country that I interviewed in the book, Ron Carson, told me his first one is he actually ran it by his top clients. He said, here's my succession plan, or in this case, it was a continuity plan. And you know what he said? They told him it was a terrible plan and they would not stay. So he had to basically rip it all up, right? <laughs> wow. He ripped it up, okay. now, but he's one of the most successful advisors in the country. So what he learned was, if you run it by your top clients, they'll tell you, would I stay with your firm if you weren't here or would I go? And I thought, what a brilliant you know, insight. Yeah. So a lot of, number one, I say, if you're out there, think about what, what do you think you'd want as a client? But number two, if you know your clients well enough, and most advisors do, don't be afraid to ask a few of them saying, here's what I'm thinking about. What would be your reaction? Now, you don't want to tell 50 of them because they're going to think, oh, my gosh, is Joe selling tomorrow? Right. But take a few of them out for lunch that you know well. And oftentimes they give you great insights because they want you to do well. And they also want your successor to do well. Before you got to that part, I was going to ask you exactly that. Would you want your clients to be aware of your succession plan? Obviously, not all of them, but right. A certain few just to see, like, did this look good to you? Um and and obviously your your best and closest clients are going to give you that good honest feedback and and uh, I'm sure just like that right new plan in place and right right and by the way it's not necessarily if you have a good plan and it's well thought out well written I would not be against telling someone you could advertise that to your clients at the right time for example if you have an annual client event if they knew that you had a written succession plan you're written well thought out vetted by a good lawyer. The reason is these clients want to know, hey, you've been my advisor, your team's been there for years, but everyone naturally in the back of their mind, at least in the money business, will say, but I got to know what's the next step. And don't forget, many of those clients have their children and grandchildren as clients of that firm. Right. So if not just for them, it's the next generation. So there's nothing wrong with broadcasting it. What you're comfortable, you know, that has been vetted because you're not telling them in that moment. I'm retiring. You're saying, hey, the good news is I have a break glass in case of emergency plan. 
Yep. And that's what they need to know. What should buyers accrue from a successful acquisition? Yeah, there are a few elements of that. And I, again, a tip to, uh, or a nod to Dan Kreuter of Gladstone Group, who I interviewed in the book. The buyers, when you buy something, it's not just the assets that you're buying, right? Not just the money, mm -hmm. but there's a few aspects. One, uh, people power. If you have a good acquisition, you might be and should be including good employees that you bring on to your firm who maybe you never would have met. So there's people power. And then you have brand power. If you're adding to your, you know, to your own clients and growing, you're adding to your own brand and clients. I often tell my own clients in my reviews when they say, Hey, what are you up to this year? I'll tell them it's confidential. I can't list the name, but we're working on another acquisition. They love to hear it. They don't need to know where it is, how much or anything like that. But I tell them we're growing. Even if we're still getting referrals from clients, I want them to know we have our own game plan. So you got brand power, people power, and then they have solutions and service power. When you bring on these other employees, oftentimes they'll expose you to software technology you might not know about and they say, you should try X, Y, Z. Well, now we have another way to solve a problem. So that's a third aspect. And you've got also you've got um, purchasing power because now with more assets, right, with bigger volume, you can negotiate better contracts and deals with your suppliers. So those are some of the things you should gather. They won't happen all in one day. It may take a couple of years, but you should consciously go into these acquisitions knowing I'm going to get these benefits at some point. Otherwise, you should reevaluate why am I doing it. Financial planner, writer, black belt. What else do you do? Is there other things? I don't. I can't imagine you have much time for much else. Right. Um, well, I do teach martial arts uh, with a friend of mine. I do Bikram yoga. I love doing the yoga. I've done Bikram, and I tell you, uh, it's hot, but it's awesome. All right. It's, yeah. uh, so I would tell people, again, I'm not, by the way, I'm, I joke, I'm the one in the back row. Don't follow my posters. <laughs> uh, but I love it. You know why? Because there's a thing, if anyone's really into the health and wellness, I just heard about this the other day from someone. It's called heat shock protein release. If you Google it, it's a true term. There are people who might be injured who can't go, let's say, running anymore. Or they can't do tennis. And if you look at it, I'm not a doctor. I just play one on TV, um, but that's a joke. But it's called heat shock protein release. If you research it, there's something about the body, the human body that enjoys, again, assuming you have no medical issues and you're well hydrated, that enjoys that. And the, if you go back in the history of this country, Indians, the American Indian, used to use what they call the sweat lodge. Yep. And they used to do that too. So it's definitely been there for a long time. I'm just saying I found for me, as long as you're hydrated, some days when I went into yoga that I couldn't do martial arts or I was busy, just being in that heat and, again, not having any medical conditions that would prevent me from doing it um, was a great way to come out and you feel energized, even though you didn't necessarily run three miles. So I'd say the Bikram yoga is probably the biggest thing. And, of course, in addition to that, um, you know, you like to do your outside hiking and stuff. But I would say those are the big things that I found outside of work you know, that help. And the funniest thing. Uh, any parent out there can appreciate this. This was a couple of years ago. My son was in middle school at the time and the teachers asked something like, um, I don't know if it was in gym or PE class, but they asked everyone like, oh, do your parents do yoga, whatever. And so instinctually he's just throwing up his hand. And he's like, I said, well, that I'm proud of you, son. He said, actually, dad, I was embarrassed. I'm like, why? He goes, because most kids were saying their mothers did yoga. Yeah. <laughs> so just when you think you have this great moment in life, right? When your son, I'm like, he didn't have to talk about the martial arts, but I thought, how cool. And he's like, actually, dad, I wasn't. <laughs> so just when you think life hands you this, right? This great uh, gift, they takes it away. Oh, kids, huh? 
All right. Uh, well, I think that's going to do it for this first episode. Uh, I think this was a pretty good sample, Tom, of sort of some of the topics you're going to be hitting over the course of this podcast. Yep. Um, that it's going to be obviously about, uh, you know, mergers and acquisitions, but that there's going to be more to it, that there's going to be more of the, of the philosophy and, and, and the wellness and the health, because that is all really important in the grand scheme of what you're doing. Ultimately. Yeah. It's, do you work to live or do you live to work? And what I like to impart to the audience is whatever you do, whatever line of work, you really should have a game plan on where does this all lead someday? Because in the end, you know, we've all heard the stories of the lottery winners who by right should have a great life. Many lottery winners end up broke. You go, why? Well, they didn't, you know, weren't trained in discipline to deal with that much money at one time. But yeah, we'd like to integrate this theme of health, wellness, and healthy living. And also in addition to running a good, you know, financial services practice and where that leads to down the road. So I'm excited to share all these future ideas with you. Well, I'm so excited that you're sharing them with us. This was a, a great first episode. I'm really looking forward uh, to hearing what you got coming up uh, in the next few weeks. You can find the Secession Fit podcast on all of the uh, different platforms, uh, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon. If there's a platform, we're on it. Tom Hine, thanks so much for being here today. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the Secession Fit Podcast. Sweet. Awesome. I thought that flowed, guys. That was amazing. Really? Yeah, I totally did. thought it flowed. You're great. I feel like I could talk to you all day. Yeah. As long as it's not about Yankees and Red Sox. Yeah. <laughs> we got to steer clear of the hot topics. Right. Yeah, no, I wow. loved it. I, I could see us doing this, right? Mm. Yeah, even... It depends if you dub it out. I don't mind when you go, oh, I just had this tip of the tongue thing, because that's real. It's your call whether you dub it out or not. But sometimes it shows that it's not so rehearsed that, yeah. you know, this thing is live. I may clip out a little of it, but yeah, yeah it, 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 that was. Um, and you know what it was that she said yeah. to me was she said, do you know where your money is and do you know how to get it whenever you want it? Save that for the next one. That's brilliant. That's right? what the question was. Yeah, exactly I think it's brilliant. It and that's that's worthy of its own, you know, kickoff. So um, and that's why I'm saying it's so exciting for us to meet advisors who need help because they've done this for 30 years, but they don't know what to do with this baby they built. But they keep coming into work trying to do the same thing over and over again. They're not getting anywhere. So you have a great voice. You ever think about being an announcer? No, you know, like UFC, like. Thank you. Yeah, I'm telling you, right? Just real smooth, real easy to talk to. You did a really nice job. You know what the other major thing is, and, and this is something I teach in the broadcasting classes, and you do a really good job of it, is when you're done with your line, you look right at me. Right, right. I do. And yes. that way, I know. It's my yeah. turn. Yeah, exactly. And I tell my students that all the time. I'm like, if you're, if you're like, especially if you're in a multi- person set up where maybe there's more than just the two people you know if i want jacob to talk next and i'm directing everything i'm saying and i'm looking right at him he knows when i'm done it's his turn right it's the same thing here i just that was great i'm like oh he's looking at me my turn yeah that, that way, flowed right and it helps it you don't have the talk over there's not oh oh yeah no you uh, no my because i absolutely hate that but yeah no this this couldn't have flowed in i better. loved it i loved it i think we're off to a great start kelly you may have found me another career, Kelly. <laughs> no, I, you know, we talked about early on, she was really brilliant and suggesting to me early on, she goes, you know, we should talk more about the health and wellness aspect. And I'm so used to doing what I do that I think, no, people just want to hear about making money, mergers and acquisitions. 
But the more I talk to advisors, and that's why I throw the yoga thing in, because my joke is I love doing it. I'm not great at it, but it's a great stress relief. And you guys know I'll take off all the time. And the more I think about it, many advisors could probably prolong their careers if they wanted to by still working, but staying healthy. Yep. But they don't know to do that. So they come to us when they're already already maxed out, you know, and they're like frazzled. We've seen that time and time again. So I love the kickoff one. I think we're going to have some more exciting ones. We'll keep going. Awesome. It was funny. You were talking about making money. I get a notification from Robinhood. They go, oh, your Dogecoin shares is going up. Right. Like, oh, perfect time. <laughs> yeah, perfect, right? The universe was telling you that. I mean, I've got Coinbase and Bitcoin, and I'm checking on it too, you know. Um, and that's why, by the way, that's another, I mean, we're not there yet, but I'll show you that my broker dealer is going to be putting out, remind me to ask compliance. You're supposed to put out a piece I love because it's so current. If we could work in a podcast where we talk about, you know, financial services without giving advice now, that's, that's a biggie, yeah. but just, we can ask them, can we cover 